continuing this morning in Genesis. This will not uh, be a surprise to those of you who have been here for some time. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting morning, isn't it, to see many new faces here this morning. <laughs> We're glad to see that many of you are here and to listen to God's Word. Um, I hope that this is an evidence of our practice that we seek to let the Word of God speak for itself. And it's our responsibility to sit under the voice of God, not be at the whims of uh, the preacher and what he would like to say. And so this morning, a unique tale uh, in, the, in the patriarchal accounts. So we are in the middle of this chiasm uh, through the middle of Genesis. So Genesis 27 through 33 is arranged chiastically, and, and this text finds its home right in the center. You wouldn't think that this would be the main point of anything, but hopefully by the end of this hour, we may see why Moses has, by uh, the divine desire, arranged things this way. So this text finds its home right in the middle of the Jacob Chronicles, and the story has his story, Jacob's, has been marked throughout the entire thing by conflict. A conflict with Esau, his brother, uh, from the time that they were born to the time uh, that they were aged men. Also marked by conflict with Laban, his uncle. Last week, we saw that Jacob arrived at his northern family's estate, and he worked seven hard years to marry the younger of two sister cousins. Instead, in a grand and rather ironic literary reversal, Uncle Laban deceived Jacob and on the night of their wedding, swapped the two sisters. And when Jacob confronted Laban about that, Laban then allows Jacob to marry Rachel as well for the low price of seven more years of labor. Jacob agrees to that deal and our story for the day is set up. Verse 30 of chapter 29, so the last verse of the text from last week, is important to work with verse 31, which is the first verse of this week. So Genesis 29, 30 says, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. That is the setup for the grand drama of the week. Rachel is loved by Jacob. She is the apple of his eye. She has all of his favor, and he does not love his first wife, her older sister, Leah. It's very strong language in the text. They're intended as opposites. That's why some translations may render it love and hate. Not unlike the very strong language used in the prophets and later picked up by the Apostle Paul about Jacob, or God loving Jacob, but God hating Esau. One is chosen and his favor is set upon. The other is not chosen and his favor is not set upon her. That's very strong language for these two wives, isn't it? And it could set up, as we understand, the, the drama, the jealousy, the envy that he only loves Rachel, the younger one, the more beautiful one. 
Think about the pain that may unfold within the family. And right, right away, uh, if you haven't listened to last week, go listen to last week. There were many things said uh, about polygamy and such that we won't address today. That's important uh, for the narrative. This is not God's design nor His desire, but it is something that He is actively and sovereignly using to accomplish His promise. So, Strong language here, and Proverbs 30 picks up uh, this very picture by saying that the earth trembles when an unloved woman is married. And that's exactly what's happening here. The earth is shaking under the drama of this war between two sister wives. They're in competition with each other for multiple things. They're in competition for the heart of their husband and for his lineage, for offspring. Interestingly, you can see right off the bat that both of them have one of those things and they're seeking to use what they have in order to get the other. Leah possesses favor and she's seeking to use the favor and the love that she has with Jacob to produce offspring. After all, if she is the favored wife, shouldn't she have his children? Shouldn't she bear his sons? And Leah, she possesses children, as we'll see in just a moment, and she uses these children to seek to get to the heart of her husband. She wants him to love her. The structure of this text, there's a few things we'll note at the beginning. It's very simple um, in order. So there's four sections. They're primarily based around one participant seeing. So in chapter 29, verse 31, it begins, When the Lord saw, when Yahweh saw, and that section runs until chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw, which is another short section, 8 verses, 30, verse 9. When Leah saw, and that's the longest section there, and at the very end, three short verses Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. So that's our structure, literarily. Um, it begins and ends with Rachel. She is, while not the main participant, perhaps, in the text, from the grand perspective, she is uh, the center here. So it begins with her barrenness, and it ends with her fertility. And then one thing that we'll take up a good portion of the text this morning, um, by God's choice, I think, <laughs> is the description of all of the sons' names. From the Hebrew perspective, it's very visible and very important. It's one of the things that's leading from a literary perspective in the text. Um, from our perspective, it's a little bit veiled because we have the boys' names transliterated from Hebrew to English. So there they are, Reuben, you know, Simeon, Levi, those are Hebrew names. Um, but the words that the moms are saying in association with all of their names have been translated by words so that we understand them, right? But hidden in the mom's phrases about each of the 12, well, 11 sons, one daughter, 12 total in this text, um, are the very names of their sons. They're word plays. And so apologies to anyone who speaks Hebrew, because I'm going to give it a little bit of a shot this morning. And I hope that it's clear. It is, it's a little bit heavy as we walk through, um, but, but I hope that it's clear what they're saying and why they're saying it. These descriptions 
are a little bit less about the meaning of the boys' names. Not like, oh, so Reuben means that because she said that. It's more the other way around, that Reuben's name finds its meaning in the circumstance of his mom's life at the time. So he's named based on what's going on rather than she names him because she wants him to carry this meaning. And so with those things in mind, here's a structure. Rachel at the beginning and the end, and then the boys' names uh, really carrying us through the story. Let's jump in to section number one, Yahweh saw. What is it that he saw in verse 31? The Lord saw injustice. The Lord saw that Leah, the wife of Jacob, was unloved. Is that right? That is not right. That's wrong. It should be that a husband has great love and affection for his wife. It's a part of the dysfunction that's already on display, partially because he's married two of them. And so he didn't choose the first one. He cares little for her. She is unloved. And so God, in his all-knowing, all-compassionate, all-good nature, he sees fit in his sovereignty to open the womb of Leah. But Rachel was barren. And so Leah conceives and bears a son. And these four tell us a bit of a tale. They set the stage for Leah's heart, Leah's desire in the whole matter. So when she has her firstborn son, she names him Reuben. And the phrase that she says is, Yahweh has surely looked on my affliction. So a few notes here. I'll just say this once and then you'll know. Of course, probably you already know this. But Hebrew works uh, from right to left. And English is working uh, from left to right. And so the words crisscross, just for your, if you're trying to sort of follow along or maybe catch some of the Hebrew characters, um, that's what's going on. So, uh, Ra'ah Yahweh Be'oni. Ra'ah is that he sees. Yahweh in the center, Adonai. God has seen what? Be'oni, my affliction. And so I've sought to illustrate in the bold, this is where Ra'abeon, Reuben, comes from, is that it's a word play on God saw me. God saw what was going on. He knows. In the middle of this tragedy of my marriage, whether she wanted the marriage to happen or not, she's in it now, and she's unloved. She's set to the side. God knows about that. And when she bears her firstborn son, which is a grand moment uh, that she is actually carrying on the lineage of Jacob, in this moment she says, God knows. He's seen my affliction. And he's blessed me. She attributes Reuben to God. And she says, now maybe, because I've had his son, maybe now I'll get his love. Maybe now Jacob will love me. What a sad story. Then she conceived again. She bears another son and says, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So, Sama Yahweh, the Lord hears. Not only did he see Now he listens to me. He's heard my cry. She's lifted this cry of probably letting God know and prayers, all the things that are going on, her desperation, the difficulty of the circumstance. And she says, 
God has heard me, so he's given me a second son. She has another son. Keep in mind how much time is passing here. <laughs> For us, it's just, and she popped out another one, and another one, and another one, and she's three kids in. Well, we're a couple years in pretty soon here. She conceived again, bore a son. This time, my husband will become attached to me. The entire name of her son is attachment. Yilaveh Ishi Eli. She is her husband will be joined to me. Maybe now three sons in, surely his affection would be drawn to me. Levi later, uh, nothing in this text says anything about Levi you know, becoming the priestly tribe. Uh, but later on in Leviticus, there's a play on Levi and attachment, where it's attachment to God, attachment to the priestly uh, responsibility, attachment to Aaron. Uh, and so they play on this name. But here, her desire, I just want to be close to Jacob. I just want him to look at me. He only ever looks at Rachel. Maybe three sons in. My husband would be joined to me. It's a prayer. It's hopeful. Three sons may even be, this is a moment of hope. You know, she may be looking back to the pre-patriarchal fathers. Adam, we know, three sons. Noah, three sons. Terah, three sons. Leah, three sons, perhaps now. She conceived again and bore a son and said, I will just praise the Lord. Judah, Judah ate Yahweh. Praise to God. She resigns herself that her marriage is not to be one of love. It's to be one of worship. And she says, okay, Lord, if this is how it is to be, she doesn't, it's not that there's not hope later on when she has more boys. She's still hopeful, but it seems as though she's resigned herself to say, God, what you have given me, I will take. And I will rejoice in you. I will worship you despite my circumstances. So she called his name Judah, and then he's, she stopped bearing. Four sons. The entire time, all that she wants is to be seen, is to be loved, is to be heard. And she rejoices that God sees, loves, and hears her. But isn't it heartbreaking that her husband will not? So that's scene one. And it sets us up for what Rachel sees. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now Rachel saw, this is a little bit of how you know that it's literary. Of course, she, how did she see that she wasn't bearing children? Well, it's a bit of a funny way to say it, but... It's because of the three sections being set up here. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, the beloved one couldn't have evidence of that love in a child. And so what did it produce? Bitterness, envy, strife, a war. It's on. And she says to Jacob, she's angry at her husband. She says, give me children or else I die. A little bit dramatic from our perspective anyways. But not dramatic from theirs. There's this brief argument, and the argument displays very clearly that Rachel is culturally exposed. She is vulnerable. It is scandalous for her to not have children, to be barren, 
children in this time, in this culture, are, are a mark of success for a wife. And so the unloved, one is, or the unloved one is successful. The loved one is unsuccessful. In what world does that make sense? Give me my children. Lineage, inheritance, evidence of love. Clearly the physical problem does not lie with Jacob, does it? He can have kids, but she can't. That's vulnerable. So she's exposed, ashamed, envious, jealous, and angry. So she marches to Jacob and says this, give me children or I die. And how does Jacob respond? (laughs) Not very well, but he's mad. He says, how dare you tell me To give you kids, it's not like I'm not doing my part. God is the one that's kept this from you. Am I God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? No, and so even between them, there's bitterness and strife and anger. It illustrates the desperation, and it does help us to understand. No need to justify it. It's wrong where Rachel goes from here, but it does help us to understand her immoral choice and saying, well, if I can't, then my maid may be able to. So the purpose here, much like the the matriarch Sarah, was to ensure lineage, to win the battle against her sister, being the favored wife. She should have his children. And to receive honor. Later it says her reproach is how she describes the situation. So it's, she's seeking to have her reproach removed. So her solution, her strategy, is an unwise and an immoral one. But perhaps we can understand it, have some sympathy for her. She says, here is my maid, Bilha. Go in to her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. And so we would do well to understand the cultural perspective of surrogacy here through this concubine. They viewed this as Rachel's child. Now, not quite to the extent that they would view it as Rachel having her own. We see that subtly hinted in, uh, in the text later when Leah keeps counting her sons after Zilpah's had a few, and she only keeps count from her womb. <laughs> But they would view this as you're having a child on my behalf. It's surrogacy. So this is Rachel's offspring, you might say. And that uh, phrase, unusual to us, bear a child on my knees. Uh, We're not entirely sure whether it's a metaphor or some sort of uh, like a rite. Whether it just means you have the child on my behalf. It becomes mine, you set the child on my knees. Or if it was some sort of ritual in the childbearing process, in the birth process, so that they would memorialize the movement from one a mother to another. Uh, but that's what's being stated, is the surrogacy here. And so, it works. According to Rachel's strategy, she gives him Bil- Bilhah, her maid, as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceives and bore Jacob a son. So that's these top two here, Dan and Naphtali. Um, and Rachel says, right, because Rachel gets to name, because Rachel is the mom. Rachel says, God has judged my case. Danani Elohim. God has vindicated me. Finally, a son. Interestingly, the divine name is absent in all of the names. 
So you'll see them in the phrases, Yahweh or Elohim is, is named in the phrases, but the boys don't carry the names. If you can think of, think of another Dan who would have the name of God in his name, right? Daniel. In fact, that's exactly here in the text. There's the L if you wanted the name Daniel. Um, but she doesn't name him Daniel. She names him Dan. I'm not necessarily hinting anything by that, but it is interesting that none of the boys bear the divine name while the divine name is in the phrases that the mothers are describing. So Dan is vindication, judgment. He saw me and, and he gave me what I deserved finally. Then it happens again. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceives again, bore Jacob a second son, and Rachel said, with great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. Naphtali, Elohim, Naphtali. With that, there's the divine name to describe the superlative. The, that's the great wrestling, the, the greatest of all, the divine wrestlings I have wrestled. That's how deep this division went. This is the fight of fights against her, between her and her sister. And now she feels as though she's gaining some ground, right? I'm winning, I'm winning. Vindication. Now she even, she even claims victory, even though she's down kids still. She's claiming victory, like, I prevailed. Maybe she has hope, you know, that Bilhah will continue. After all, Leah may be having a pause in childbearing at this point. So she says, we'll be able to catch up. We're going to win. So ends scene two, striving, vindication, winning. You can kind of see her emphasis is the bitter struggle. Now, Leah sees <laughs> that she's catching up, right? So scene three opens with Leah understanding. Verse nine, she sees that she stopped bearing. And so she says, I'll adopt your strategy. You gave him your maid. I'll give him my maid. And so the sin multiplies. Again, understandable, but not moral. So Leah gives Zilpah, her maid, to Jacob as a wife. And it works. It keeps working. Both of the girls are getting what they want. In some ways, Leah's still not having her own children. Leah's still not having the love of Jacob. But they're building the son count. And so Leah's made Zilpah, verse 10, bore Jacob a son, and Leah says, a troop comes. That's weird. A troop comes. Some of you may have some other translations there. Uh, if it's consistent with that definition, you may have a tribe comes. Many of you may also be reading, good fortune has come. Those are the two definitions of Gad. So she says, Bagad, Ba'ah, a tribe or fortune has come to me. I lean towards fortune because it is parallel with Asher, the next son. And I don't believe it's in, well, while certainly lineage is in Leah's mind, the idea that these boys move to be the heads of tribes uh, in the way that we see it played out, is probably not what's primarily on her mind. I think she's very glad. And she's, in essence, saying, oh, luck is back on my side. I'm, I'm back in the game, right? We're continuing to count uh, towards Leah's children. And so she says, good fortune has come to me. And then it occurs again. Verse 12, Leah's maid Zilpah bears him a second son. 
And she says, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. The Be'ashiri, I am happy. You can see here that she still does not have the affection of her, of her husband. Or she would have said, Jacob has called me blessed. She says, well, if no one else will look at me favorably, at least all the women in my culture will. Because all the women would look at me and say, look at all those sons. What a blessed woman. And so, consistent with what she said earlier, she's saying, I'll just praise the Lord for what he gave me and maybe not make a demand on what he has not given to me. So she's, you know, you can just see they're back and forth and back and forth at each other. This account continues with a bit of narration. The weirdest part of our story, mandrakes. So Reuben, verse 14, who's now probably four, (laughs) a little guy, little Reuben's running around during harvest, and he finds some mandrakes in the field, and he brings them to his mom. Mommy, mommy, look what I found. I found mandrakes. Why in the world does that matter? Well, Rachel says to Leah, she sees little Reuben running around with mandrakes, and she says, I would like some of those. I want what you have. Leah erupts, and she says, what, you think you haven't taken enough from me already? You already have my husband. He married me first. He should have loved me. You've stolen him. You've stolen his affection. You're going to take my mandrakes too. Okay, if I can sleep with Jacob tonight, you can have, we don't know if it was some or all, probably some of her mandrakes. And so Jacob comes back and Leah goes out to meet him and says, hey, you're mine tonight. I bought you with some of my mandrakes. That's weird. What in the world is a mandrake? <laughs> and why are they so important? Uh, it's, uh, I think I've actually been excited for this moment because I think mandrakes are best described with a picture. These, um, these are long, and in many cultures, these are very superstitious plants. The plants were superstitious. The people were superstitious about the plants. But you, I don't know. The plants sort of look superstitious too. What do you think they would accomplish with a mandrake? Babies. They want more children. Mandrakes in many cultures, not just the Hebrew one, have been known in a variety of places to be known as an aphrodisiac, to be known as something that may cure infertility. Sometimes, weirdly, in some cultures, they'd even take a mandrake and like put it under the pillow and then do their thing, and then that surely would make a baby. So it's weird, but now we maybe understand why in the war for sons, both of the girls, like Reuben just found a prize, right? He just found a treasure trove of superstition. If you have too much of them, they're poisonous, by the way. <laughs> they can kill you. Um, so, you know. Anyways, mandrakes. That's why uh, they thought that it would be the solution. They thought that it would finally, maybe 
If prayer won't do it, if time won't do it, maybe a mandrake will do it. They're just searching after what they want. And so there's this weird exchange and Leah purchases a night with her husband. What an odd phrase. And he lay with her that night. And she got pregnant. So she's thinking, mandrakes are awesome, right? Mandrakes worked. I told you. I told you mandrakes worked. So was it the mandrakes? I don't know. Look at verse 17. And the mandrakes listened to Leah. God listened. All right, who's sovereign over seed? God's sovereign over seed. She conceived and bore Jacob. How many? Seven? No. <laughs> Zilpas don't count on her, on her numbers. Five. I have five. More than anybody else in the equation. I have five sons. And she's, this is the weirdest probably of all the names um, because she, she thinks that somehow what she's done with Zilpah or what she's done with the mandrakes, like that God is rewarding her for that. That's why she thinks she has the son. God's given me uh, my wages. Here we go. Oh, sorry. Hang with me. Issachar, God has given me my reward. Natan Elohim Sakari. Issachar, I've been blessed. It's a gift because of what I've done, because of how I've handled this whole situation. And then it happens again. Leah conceives, verse 19, and bears Jacob a sixth son. And Leah says, wow, God has endowed me. Again, he's blessed me with a great blessing. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. There's a double meaning in this one. God has endowed me, Elohim Zabadani, Zeba, Zebulun. And then not only has God done something, perhaps that will mean my husband will do something. So she hasn't let go to this, of this idea that her Ishi, her husband, will honor her. Zebulun, Yezebulini. I just want honor. I just want love. I want him to live with me. I want him to look at me as his wife. Six boys. <laughs> and then she had a daughter. Dinah. Called her name Dinah. Now why, why is there just one sentence on Dinah? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. The reason that Dinah's in this account is for a few reasons. Uh, one, because she rounds out the number 12, because Benjamin's not born yet. And that's beautiful, as meaning like that the house of Israel is full. Okay, so we'll, we, we think of Israel as 12 tribes. And so she, the, the number's 12 in the account. So that's nice, poetically. Uh, she doesn't have a description on her name because she did not become one of the inheritors as a daughter. She was not one of the inheritors or the ones that would receive blessing from her father. And she's also here because she's a main character in a few chapters. So it's introducing the daughter, uh, who is described later in chapter 34. There's a whole account on Dinah. And so it's, it's functioning in those three ways. A full house of Israel. And Leah is 
done bearing children with Dinah. Final section, God again. God remembers in verse 22. He remembers Rachel. He listens to Rachel. Just as he listened to Leah in verse 17. And now, finally, he opens Rachel's womb. This is the climax of the story. This is the great relief, the removal of all of the tension. This is what Rachel wanted the whole time. Now, she wanted more, but she wanted a child. And she conceives and bears a son. And she, there's two plays on words. We just, I just put the second one in here. But God has taken away. A piece of the name Joseph has in taken away my reproach. And so she's glad that finally this great weight on her shoulders, the very thing that has caused her envy and her jealousy. If God had only taken that away earlier, she wouldn't have ever been jealous in the first place. And so now finally she attributes God to relieving this burden of infertility and she finally has a son. And so she calls his name Addition. She calls his name another, please, Joseph, Yosef, Yahweh, Leh. May the Lord add to me. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret that, the emotion behind that, because you could have it simply be a prayer like, like you can't imagine, and if, if you, as, you and your spouse perhaps have battled with infertility, then you would certainly understand that just to then get pregnant or to have a son or a, or a daughter means this could happen again. That's certainly a hopeful moment in the text for Rachel. And so she's like, oh, yes, and now more, please. Write a prayer. It could also be viewed a little bit greedily, right? Thanks, another. <laughs> again, 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 I, I, I'm trying to catch up. Now, she gets what she prays for later on. It comes later in the story with Benjamin. And he's certainly, he's here illustratively. He's here uh, like quietly in the text, Benjamin is, because the Lord does add another son. Um, it also takes Leah's life, or Rachel's life, right? She dies in childbearing. I don't know if it's appropriate to say, careful what you wish for, but he does answer her prayer, gives her the desire of her heart, and it is at great cost to her. But the tension is relief, relieved in, in, the, in the narrative. Right? Her womb is opened, finally. The thing everyone has been waiting for, Rachel has been waiting for, and Jacob has been waiting for. This is his beloved wife. He wants children with her as well. So she says, God has taken away my reproach. May the Lord add another to me. This is the first time in the narrative that Rachel utters the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Again, I, we have to be careful not to read too much into some of the details if some of that just may happen to be. But it is only after getting what she wanted that she said things like this. Everything prior is envy, anger, bitterness, fighting, warring, winning. That's not... We would do well not to pattern our lives that way. So that's the, that's the story. What do we do with this? What do we learn from this text? What do we learn morally, 
Christologically, theologically. I think a note at the beginning is uh, one of the things we learn, and it's good for us, is just biblical literacy to learn sort of what's happening in, in the narratives of Scripture. So this is the birth of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, is which isn't something that's stated here, but it's definitely, he's written, it's, this is written to the 12 tribes. And so they know exactly what's going on. Um, and so you see just listed, these are the 12. As, as an aside, this all happens in seven years. So it's not like there's, there's uh, people that are pregnant at the same time. Some of the wives are pregnant at the same time and concubines too. Um, but this is the order, the chronology for each wife, the order in which they had these children. And so if you're counting up sort of the tribes where do we land at 12? Because there's, there's 13 total, if you, if you were to count Dinah. So you take Dinah out, not being one of the boys, then you have 12, but that's not the exact layout. There's a few things that are significant that we'll, that we'll come across later. So this is just mentioning it in advance. We'll, we'll look through this in great detail as we walk through the narratives. But the 12 tribes of Levi, or the 12 tribes of Israel... What exactly happens? First of all, why isn't Reuben the tribe through whom the Messiah comes? That's an interesting question. Well, we'll see some of the things that Reuben does in the future, and his inheritance is passed along. And then we see something that Simeon and Levi do together as brothers, and the inheritance is passed on. Judah receives the inheritance, though interestingly, he's no better than his older three brothers. There's some condemning narratives of him as well. So in the next few chapters, we really learn a lot about those four boys, um, and it's, most of it's disparaging. It's not good information about them. Um, but the, the inheritance passes at the end. This is Genesis 49. So in Genesis 49 and 50, Jacob, just before he dies, is passing on the inheritance to his boys. He's blessing them. And this is, uh, a lot of this is found there. So he passes from Reuben to Simeon and passes the, the promise of seed, the, propos, the promise of the throne, the promise of the kingly line to Judah, the one who is named, praise the Lord. Then if Le, then Levi is removed from inheritance as far as land is concerned because God has chosen that Levi is going to be the priestly tribe. So the priestly tribe doesn't inherit land um, because they have other responsibilities. So if Levi's out, then where does the other, where do we get back to 12 if we're down to 11? Well, unsurprisingly, Jacob gives a double blessing to the oldest of Rachel, which is Jacob. So part of the question in this text is just as we're walking through Genesis, it's always been where does the inheritance go? Where does the blessing go? Well, Who's the next primary one that's discussed? Joseph. And that's because of Jacob's love for him. And so Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob gives Joseph a double blessing. And that's why those two boys have tribal names and inheritances. So you have Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And those are the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, where Israel comes from is also in the next few chapters with Jacob's name being changed. So biblical literacy, this is good for us to sort of learn, to review. What other applications, moral, theological, Christological? Morally, there is order and blessing 
in the divine design for the family. God intended one man, one woman for life in this covenant of fidelity, um, a covenant toward love, a covenant of giving oneself to the other person. And that didn't happen here. And it's one of the reasons that all of the heartbreak ensued, that all of the strife and the conflict occurs. So had Jacob loved Leah because he embraced her as a gift from God despite the deception and treachery, a lot of this story doesn't exist, does it? A lot of the difficulty, sin, struggle doesn't exist. It's not really the point of the text, but it is an application that there is blessing in following, in pursuing the divine design for marriage and family and children. As we look at these two women, these sisters, you see them constantly yearning for something else, something other, something outside their boundaries something God has not given to them at that time, and it produces envy, war. It encourages adultery, bartering, fighting to get what they want. If they had hearts to believe the promise of God, then they could see that despite their heartbreak of, the, of their individual circumstances, they were blessed and blessing. God was keeping his promise to Jacob behind the scenes of this text. Hasn't God promised to Jacob great offspring? And so what does he do? He gives him great offspring. He keeps his promise. If they would have been willing to have eyes to see, and this is the encouragement for us, in the middle of trials, which are notorious for clouding our vision, aren't they? They're notorious for causing us to believe lies, to not see things truly, to doubt the promise of God, to doubt His goodness, to doubt that He's even there or that He cares. If we're willing to believe divine promise, believe that God is not absent from your pain, that He is at work in your suffering and in your sorrow, then we would be able by His grace to walk through great trials with hope and with joy and with confidence rather than with discontent, envy, and strife. So don't exchange spiritual values for physical ones. In the Christological side of things, this is a, this is a movement, so move with me. In this story, we have two fighting against each other. The question I might pose is, is the fight truly between them? Should it have been? Should the fight have been between them? Jostling for position, fighting for something they didn't have? No, I don't believe so. And yet, isn't that true to humanity? Don't we see that? Uh, even you know, Solomon says that envy is the product of, of all of this promotion, all of this physical uh, and financial success because envy is the great motivator. Everyone's just kind of jostling, clamoring, climbing, trying to get ahead of somebody else. We see this in the movement to the New Testament with the 12 closest to Christ. 
jostling for position. Who gets the right hand? Who's the highly favored one? All these conversations behind Jesus' back, things that they think he can't hear, and they're just at war. Maybe in a little bit lesser way than Leah and Rachel were at war, but they're at war with each other. They want what's best for them. They want comfort. They want abundance. They want the high position. Compare that to Christ. He did not hold his high position tightly. His heavenly status, he let go of in order to be born, in order to become one of his creation, right? in order to live a humble, very lowly life, not one even that by our standards would fall, would fall far short of his heavenly splendor. You know, the, king, the kings of earth are not like the kings of heaven. But even then, little modesty, Humility, lowliness, obedience, righteousness. He lived this life for us in order to give, in order to substitute life for death. So he did this just very generously. He even went so far as to die for his enemies. Do you see that in Rachel and Leah? Any sort of humility? No. Let us be like Christ. Let us don his virtues and live the moral majesties of the one who has called us to live in him. And then theology, uh, how do we think of God? Well, it is interesting that in the names of all these boys, at least from the wives' perspective, particularly as we do have this the, uh, theology proper that's being built. And they do stay, say some very true things in the names of these boys, that God does see your affliction. When no one else can see, God sees. When no one else would hear, God hears. When no one else will give you favor, God favors you. When no one else is kind, God is kind. God deserves our worship. God does vindicate and reward his servants. God is the true and the just judge. Whether they saw everything clearly or didn't, what they said is true. God judges, God vindicates, God rewards, God gives an inheritance. God does take away reproach and add to his people. Aren't all of those things true of him? They're consistent with his character. And so they build in their naming of their children a theology proper, a lot of these characteristics of who God is. We'd also say that this is encouraging because the sovereignty and the providence of God are on display. Sovereignty meaning his absolute rule and providence being the display of that rule in the lives of humanity. God is gentle and kind in the provision of seed. So he has absolute claim to the opening and the closing of the womb, and he does so according to his desire. We can and should rest in that, even in the midst of great difficulty, blessing, cursing, it feels, fertility, infertility, God is good and kind and the giver of life. We can take heart in that. I think we see Rachel and Leah oh, seeking solutions in their war, seeking ways to get ahead, and they even seem to believe that it worked in some of the names. Their superstition was successful. 
take heart because God has true solutions even when you faithlessly seek your own. He still blessed her with the child even though Leah believed it was a mandrake. (laughs) Right? God is very kind and patient, long-suffering with us. So take heart. His character is true. It is good. And then finally, his choice to bless. I'm saying that very generally, but his choice to bless is based on sovereign determination, not on human standards or accomplishments. So not everything humanly makes sense here. Should have been Reuben, right? Should have been Rachel. Let's walk through this. So Rachel with love. Why did she get the love instead of Leah? Leah with children. Why did did Leah get the children instead of Rachel? Um, How about Reuben not receiving the inheritance, the blessing? Why didn't he get that? He was still the firstborn despite his sin, despite his error. What about the next son? What about Simeon? Why didn't he receive it? What about Levi? Why not him? Well, all of these questions, including why, did, why was it Leah's children, Levi and Judah, that get the priestly and the kingly blessings? Why all of that? Why did Joseph get a double portion? Why does he become the main character in the story? Because God wanted that to be the case. Because God chose them and apportioned his blessing in various ways to various people. So their immoral and superstitious solutions did not compel him. God accomplished precisely what he wanted to in this story. And he kept his promise to Jacob. He built him a nation and a nation that would bless the world. And he, this is the setup really to the rest of the story. That's why it's at the center of the chiasm. And we encourage you as we walk away to exult, to rejoice in the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of great suffering and hardship.